Welcome to The Horse Race, a new weekly podcast covering Massachusetts' most exciting campaigns. I'm Steve Cazella, president of the Massing Polling Group. And I'm Lauren Dzenski, author of the Politico Massachusetts Playbook. Uh, so in the spirit of full disclosure here, uh, despite our ample use of horse humor, or at least attempts to use it, uh, and some excellently crafted puns, uh, we actually know nothing about horse racing, so please uh, bear with us, but we do know plenty about candidates. And that's what we'll be talking about. So coming up on today's episode, the disappearing Boston mayor's race, the contest to replace Nikki Songus in the Massachusetts 3rd Congressional District, Elizabeth Warren's potential opponents, and one thing to watch, how health care reform could upend the 2018 campaign. Zesty stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's start uh, first with the Boston mayoral race, which deserves ample attention. And is not getting it. And is not getting it. <laughs> Uh, so on Tuesday, we have the preliminary race. Uh, it's a four-way race, but honestly, there really hasn't been a lot going on. Uh, first and foremost, uh, what's happened with Tito Jackson, the Boston City Councilor who you know launched, launched this insurgent campaign uh, you know, back this winter? Where, where do things stand, Steve? Well, there, there hasn't been a lot of polling on it. I mean, what there is and what we can tell from observing what the candidates are doing, it, it appears that... Walsh is way ahead. You know, there have been two polls, one from the Boston Globe and one from, from Emerson, both of which show, the, show Marty Walsh with about a 30-point lead. And um, when, were, when were those recorded? One was just done recently, this, this week, the Emerson College poll. Um, and then it, it matches, in terms of that margin, a, a Boston Globe poll from back in June. Okay, so th there's really been no movement in the field. No, I mean, there's, there's not much polling, and this is, a this is the kind of race which, as a pollster, I'll say, is very hard to peg. I mean, because you don't know who's going to show up. You don't know um, necessarily if it's going to be a low turnout or high turnout or whether or not certain neighborhoods are going to surge or not surge. You know, we don't – it's also right one of the first uh, – you know, it's the first sort of election cycle, I guess, if you want to call it that, after Trump was elected in Boston, and you've seen a lot of sort of pent-up energy – um, in, in other parts of civic life. So there are reasons to imagine that turnout could be different. You know, that being said, the candidates are behaving in ways that would suggest that they largely see the race in the same way. You know, Walsh is kind of avoiding a lot of public attention, you know. Including debates. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Um, avoiding debates and, uh, you know, Jackson's not trying to, doesn't seem to be trying to insist that the race is really much closer than the media is portraying it as or it, than the polls, I guess, have portrayed it. Because the media has largely, I think, ignored the race. For the most part. And, and I think a lot of that, where, where it comes from, um, or I guess one of the things to kind of break that down, is that the Boston mayoral race four years ago was a completely open field. It was, it was this, all of this pent-up energy, pent-up ambition was finally uncorked. And, you know, you had a large, large, large field of candidates and it was very competitive and it was very exciting. And now, you know, we have the incumbent. And I have to admit, I was surprised that we really only had Tito Jackson run. You know, there's obviously two other candidates, but they, they haven't caught fire. They haven't caught momentum. There's an argument to say that Tito Jackson hasn't either. But it's, it's incredible to me that in a city that fielded, you know, more than 10 mayoral candidates just four years ago that any real competitive challenger or any multiple competitive challengers sat this race out. And there have been, I mean, there have been big issues too. It's not as though there's been nothing that has the city has really had to talk about or think about or that's really divided the city. You know, you think about the Olympics, you think about 
um, you know, questions around education and housing costs and so forth. There are a lot of things that voters have disagreed on and a lot of things where satisfaction with the way things are going in the city isn't all that high. And I have to wonder if some of this is uh, Boston's kind of trend toward incumbent mayors. You know, we had Mayor Menino in office for five terms. Uh, maybe this is just the Boston electorate to a certain extent just being used to Mayor Walsh. Uh, I, I will say, though, that, uh, you know, uh, any mayor, you know, their first term running for re-election, that's really when they're weakest. And so for any, you know, would-be challengers, this race would have seemed like the right one to go after them. So uh, I have to wonder if now it's a question of, you know, how long will Marty be in office? Yeah, I think that's that's a very good point. I, I think that rule applies, you know, to, to, to any office where it's first when you're trying to get in office and then your first re-elect is where um, you know, potential challengers are most likely to come out of the woodwork. So if this Tuesday goes the way it appears that it's going to go, um, you know, we've got one more wave coming up in November, but then after that, you're, I, th I think you're right. You know, he's in an even stronger position. Um, I mean, right now you, you compare the fundraising and you see that he's already in a strong position. He's got many multiples of what Tito Jackson has in the bank. Yeah, and he's yeah. raising many multiples more than, than Tito Jackson's raising. I'm curious to see how things change after the primary. You know, when it's just Tito, when it's just Marty, you know, to what extent will it be a more competitive race? You know, will we see them sit down with debates? There's there's supposed to be debates on the calendar. You know, will it be more of a vetting of the issues and the differences that they have to really give the voters of Boston, you know, a competitive race that honestly they deserve? Yes, and we'll see you next week. So moving to another race north of Boston, uh, the race is on to replace Nikki Songus, the retiring congresswoman from the Massachusetts 3rd Congressional District. So Lauren, tell us what's going on here. Absolutely. So this was a surprise in the Merrimack Valley. Uh, basically... A surprise that she was retiring? Yeah, a surprise that she was retiring. Uh, th there had been rumors, you know, that Nikki Songus was going to retire. She was basically seen as, you know, the first member of the congressional delegation that with the highest odds to, to leave. So, you know, people had been looking at the seat for a while. It's no secret that uh, Mayor Marty Walsh's chief of staff, Dan Coe, you know, had been interested in the district. He's from there. Uh, he's also the first uh, candidate who basically announced that he was going to start fundraising. So essentially, this uh, open seat, for the most part, unleashed un, uh, unleashed another opportunity of unbridled interest. <laughs> There's the horse racing. There. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, a lot of people are looking at it. And, and Steve, I'm curious to get your your take, your explanation on, uh, you know, legit interest uh, by both sides, uh, on both sides of the aisle. But, you know, this is this is really an opportunity for, um, you know, a an a, uh, upward rising uh, candidate to, to grab onto a higher yes. seat. Of and there aren't that many of those. There aren't that many of those sort of chances to move up. Um, we don't tend to do that a lot in Massachusetts. We don't tend to primary sitting incumbents. Um, we you have wait your some, turn. Yeah, we have some of the least competitive elections in America, at least as far as the state legislature goes. Um, so, but, but here in the third congressional district, I think the thing that's most interesting to me is that that Republicans often win in the third. They don't win the third seat, but when you look at statewide elections, you've got 
Um, Charlie Baker won the one in terms of voters casting ballots in the third congressional district. Um, Gabriel Gomez narrowly won in 2013 when he ran in the special election against Ed Markey. Um, even Scott Brown, when he ran against Elizabeth Warren and lost statewide, he still won the third. So there are plenty of voters in the third congressional district who are willing to support Republicans and, willing, and often turn out and cast ballots for Republicans. It's the kind of district where if Republicans are going to break the Democratic hold on the congressional district, this is one of the two or three where they have the best chance. And in, Absolutely. Uh, and I think you, know, you, you hear that from people behind the scenes, and I think the state party absolutely sees that. Um, at least right now, you know, we're seeing most of the movement in the Democratic field of candidates. You know, no one has 100% fully announced that they're running, but right now we have people who are raising money and they've announced that they're, you know, uh, they've got exploratory committees and, you know, those those uh, FEC disclosures are are starting. Uh, specifically from Dan Coe, uh, as well as State Senator Barbara Letalian, um, they Right now, we're kind of in this weird in-between of we're approaching the end of the fundraising quarter. Mm -hmm. um, there's going to be a filing deadline, and basically, uh, you know, what candidates can show that they have the fundraising prowess to to raise a lot really quickly. Um, and I think the understanding, at least right now, is that Dan Coe, who, you know, went to Harvard, you know, has connections there, has connections, you know, from the city of Boston, from his job, he's seen as kind of the one to beat financially. Um, financially, but does that apply politically? Do these connections in Boston, does an endorsement from uh, Mayor Walsh, does that do anything in the third, or does that remain to be seen? That's a great question, and I think that that's an issue that you're going to see from the Republicans who look at it. Rick Green from Mass Fiscal is the only uh, Republican, at least that I'm aware of, who's announced that you know he's interested in looking at it and is starting fundraising. And uh, Rick Green, in probably a, in an excellent, excellent uh, little stunt, I guess, uh, sent Dan Coe a uh, thing of Boston baked beans uh, oh. to to his new apartment because he moved up to Andover uh, to basically now live in the district because he wasn't living in the district. Of course, to run for Congress, you don't actually have to live in the district. Uh, Senator, Senator Barbara Italian also doesn't technically live in the district either, but she lives in the same town that is divided. But so he sent him a, th a housewarming present of Boston baked beans. And so there's that that's going to be a narrative here. That's that's absolutely a component. Any. Um, OK, we're just going to do it. Any odds on favorites? Oh, <laughs> I see what you did there. Uh, I mean, you know, Dan Coe right now is is the one one that's been announced, and and you know is certainly you know he's he's occupying a lot of the oxygen right now. Um, one name to keep an eye on is first term state rep from Lawrence Juana Matias. Um, she's younger, but you know only two years younger than Dan Coe. Um, she she waged a Seth Moulton esque. Uh, insurgent bid uh, to unseat the the sitting state rep in Lawrence, um, you know, just last cycle, and she, uh, you know, represents something different that Massachusetts could field uh, in Congress. You know, she's she's younger, she's an immigrant, she lives in Lawrence. You know, she. Uh, from from the you know Map Holly types that you know I've talked to about her um, and who have reached out about her, you know they see her as this candidate that 
is exactly what Donald Trump doesn't want. And for a you know resistance-heavy congressional delegation, uh, Juana Matias absolutely could represent that. But you know, does she want to give up the seat that she just fought so hard to get in the yeah. state house? You know, she doesn't have time to be a full-time candidate like Dan Coe could. Um, you know, she kind of has some of the the same issues. Uh, you know, with giving things up. Uh, you know, with with the seat that she has incumbently uh, with Barbara Italian. So. You know, it, it stands to be seen, but that's certainly something to watch. She told me that uh, she will make a decision on that in uh, in October. And it's one of these one of these primaries, at least, where if you do have a very large field, you could have a pretty small number of votes actually win it. You know, we'll see. I, I guess how many of these potential candidates end up getting in, but that'll be another thing to watch. Absolutely. So moving to the most competitive statewide race that we have right now, sorry, governor's race, uh, is the Republican primary uh, to face off against Senator Elizabeth Warren. Uh, we have four people right now that are looking at it, um, but we have two specific Republican challengers uh, who are hitching their wagons onto ballot questions uh, and issue type things. Uh, represent State Rep uh, Jeff Deal and uh, GOP operative Beth Lindstrom. Steve, do you want to break this down a little sure. bit? Sure. So uh, Jeff Deal announced recently that he'll be collecting signatures for to reduce the sales tax. So reducing the sales tax is sort of a surprise ballot question that I think a lot of people didn't necessarily see coming, but that the Mass Retailers Association and others are now um, pushing to put on the ballot in 2018. If it were passed, it would reduce the sales tax from 6.25 back down to 5, uh, 5%. Um, it's not small money we're talking about. This is billions of dollars, potentially. Um, the sales tax is roughly gives the state roughly a billion dollars for each point of the sales tax. Um, so there's a lot of sort of big things that could possibly really change the state's revenue picture, and this is one of them. And and that combined with the potential millionaire's tax, or the so-called millionaire's tax, which is, uh, you know, uh, an additional tax on income, annual income earners over a million dollars, I mean, this would absolutely change how money comes into the state. Uh, right. But, and but so where's, where's the benefit for Jeff Deal to, you know, link up with this? Well, he's had some success in the past with this kind of thing. So in 2014, he... Uh, was one of the leaders of the successful campaign to repeal the so-called gas tax indexing. So the idea of increasing gas taxes at the same pace, at the pace of inflation. He helped lead that campaign and was successful in rolling back that law. Um, it's it's a way to get attention, essentially, for in this particular case. Um, it, I'm sure it's something which also comports with his beliefs and ideology. Um, it's not necessarily something that, as a senator, he would really be, you know, it doesn't, it's not really within his purview, but it is something which is very likely to be a contentious issue in 2018 if it remains something that's headed toward the ballot. So Jeff Deal was a Trump supporter. You know, he was out really strong with him. You know, kind of represents part of the state party that is Trump. You know, it's sometimes it, you know, this this section of the state Republican Party is at odds with Governor Charlie Baker. Does does Jeff Deal's association with a with a ballot question like this, does that allow him to kind of eat into the middle to kind of go after some of these Baker-esque Republicans? It's a good question because you're right. There is There are sort of different parts of the Republican Party in Massachusetts right now. I'm not necessarily people who are registered in the party. That's not what I mean. But the Republican vote. Um, you know, Donald Trump did extremely well in the primary in Massachusetts. It was one of his best states in the early, in the early going. Up until New York. Yes. Um, he had, you know, almost 50 percent, and the, there were still, you know, almost a dozen candidates in at that point. So he, he did very, very well. Um, 
that being said, you know, Charlie Baker is the de facto leader of the party in the state and is from a very different part of the Republican Party, you know, is very often at odds with what the Trump administration is doing and what they're saying and so forth. So, you know, Jeff Deal being in one camp and potentially being the Senate candidate and Charlie B Baker being in the other camp and potentially being the gubernatorial candidate does set up a very sort of interesting uh, constellation of forces in the Republican Party. Absolutely. Um, and then in terms of Beth Lindstrom, who is, you know, longtime GOP operative here, uh, very close with the Scott Brown wing of, you know, the state Republican Party, you know, has, uh, as well as, you know, the Romney types, you know, she has pledged to organize against potential tax um, on this Logan Airport automobile pickups and drop-offs. Well, tell us more about that, because that's not a ballot question. That's right. not anything official yet at yeah, this point. Yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what makes this kind of interesting, you know, in, in saying that they want to support something like this. So basically, uh, you know, Beth says that she is going to talk about this on the campaign trail. This is going to be an issue that she's going to align herself with. But it's, it's not a ballot question. So it's, it's more of an issue type thing that, you know, they her campaign can kind of hedge their bets and, you know, talk about a, you know, anti-airport tax issue, but it's it's not necessarily as risky or as financially injurious as a, as a you know, ballot question that would change the tax code in the state. And it's also a way for a candidate like her to, you know, raise her profile against, you know, other Republican challengers and ultimately set herself up better against, you know, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Because at the end of the day, Warren takes up so much oxygen, even just on a national scene. Any Republican who challenges her is really going to have to raise their profile, right. have a significant, significant presence. And, you know, campaigns like this are a great way for them to raise that profile. Yeah, she's the big. She's really the big fish in that particular in, in that particular pond. Is so. is she the sea biscuit of the race? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, oh. Hannah. Thank you. Thank you for that recommendation. Our producer Hannah recommended Just the, put the, the sea, sea biscuit, biscuit out there. The sea biscuit okay. business. Okay. Um, yeah, sorry. Yes, uh, <laughs> I'd say the, the prohibitive favorite. I mean, the, the, the truth of the matter is, though, polling on the Senate race is is not a runaway. Uh, I, I didn't even do that on purpose, and now look what you've done to me. <laughs> um, Senator Elizabeth Warren has has always been very popular in the Democratic Party. She is not usually she's not ever had much cross party appeals. So her election is going to come down to the middle of the spectrum, which is one of the reasons why I think you've got um, someone someone like Beth Lindstrom, you know, looking to raise her profile because she recognizes there is real potential there for her to pick up to pick up some voters that Elizabeth Warren would like to keep. All that being said, you know, Warren, at least based on the polling I've seen, remains the favorite. And and can you talk a little bit about? you know, how she is the favorite. One of the things that I've come to understand about Warren and her standing in Massachusetts is that, you know, she didn't beat Scott Brown by all that much. You know, she doesn't have super high favorables necessarily among wide swaths of Massachusetts voters, although she does have, you know, a, you know tens of thousands of, of donors in Massachusetts. But for the people that do support her, what, what do we see there? Yeah, so what's interesting about her, even compared to Baker, is that Baker has more people who view him favorably, but she has more people who view her very favorably. So, like, she's got more passionate supporters would be the English way of saying that poll sentence. Um, <laughs> Thank you for translating. Yeah, and, she, and you know, that she's got enough people in the middle who, who, um, who support her and, and who feel favorably towards her. You know, but she is polarizing. You know, when you look at the people who don't support her, they really don't 
like her and are really opposed to the things she stand for, stands for. So there's going to be that competition to hold on to the, the voters in the middle that she needs. Absolutely. So really quick, uh, scooting on to a, uh, a topic that, Steve, you said could have a major impact in the governor's race, Governor Baker and the Graham-Cassidy health care bill. Yes. So this is the latest uh, Republican attempt to repeal the Affordable Care Act um, to get rid of Obamacare. And Charlie Baker, as he has been with the other attempts, has come out against this particular proposal. Um, the, the thing that will be interesting is if it passes, so setting aside for the moment the politics of whether it should pass and, and who's for it and who's against it and so forth, if it does pass, I think the potential for a huge impact on 2018 is significant. Um, the reason is is just money. You know, this the, the analyses I've seen have shown that this takes billions and billions and billions, however many billions you want to say, dollars away from the, from the state um, in terms of Medicaid funding. Um, so you you know you look out a few years and you've got to do one of two things. You've either you've got to either fill the hole left by Graham Cassidy or you have to figure out how you're going to cut you know make cuts to uh, to make the budget balance again. Absolutely, this is certainly something to watch. All right, folks. So next week we have Boston's preliminary mayoral election results. And to parse those delightful results and the data and to preview the final election in November, we'll have the man who literally wrote the book on Marty Walsh's election in 2013, Mr. Gin Dumptious, author of This Way to City Hall, and now a reporter for Mass Live. And that's it for this episode of The Horse Race. Thank you for tuning in.